we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On Buffalo What's Next today, we have a topic that we have touched on in the past. We're going to get into it on a variety of levels in this hour, and that, of course, is the addiction crisis here in Western New York and across the country, for that matter. With us today from Best Self Behavioral Health, trainer and innovator, Ann Bridenstine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And what brings us, kind of reprompted this topic for us to a certain extent, is the recent decision to put Narcan as an over-the-counter medicine. Mm-hmm. We're going to see that, right, in our stores. Yes, by by early to mid-summer, they're saying we're going to see this on our shelves. It's so. a different, different idea. It almost seems... Not that long ago when I first heard of Narcan, and now here it is, it's going to be in stores. But the need is great, right? Absolutely. And I think one of the greatest things about this progress and bringing it into our stores is that it's accessible to more populations than just those that are initially targeted. So, you know, we have... Narcan available for free in our community in a variety of different ways. There's actually 66 overdose prevention programs in Erie County alone. Um, But most of those are our clinic-based programs, a clinic where you might have to be a patient to get access and ask for um, Narcan to have at home. Um, This is a great stride in making it available just to purchase. Now, that opens Narcan up to be available to a group of people that have the resources and the ability to get right. to stores. So I also want to emphasize that it being an over-the-counter medication, um, we hope doesn't take away from that free state program we have that really gets that naloxone into the hands of It really of can't. Folks. I mean, there's no way, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no way. I mean, we've talked before we went on the air mm-hmm. about some of the experience that you've had in dealing with, with people, um, a lot of, you know, marginalized individuals who probably don't have a lot of resources. If they don't get it through a clinic, they don't get it for free. They probably are going to suffer the, the consequence, yes. which is fatal, of course. Die. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's – and I think that that's the um, – unfortunately, the fear, though, in some of the reading of these articles. And I think we've been reassured by New York State – in general, that that overdose prevention program isn't going to go anywhere right. with this approval, um, which is great. You know, right. New York State is a well-funded state when it comes to our naloxone program. We're lucky for that. Um, there's not, you know, other states in the U.S. don't have that same access. So um, it's very – when we read articles that talk about the cost of supporting these programs sure. and then it being over the counter, some folks in the community go, but wait, what's happening? 
It's not going anywhere. Right. We're going to have it. And 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 then you also and you also see the advantage being though that now that it's going to be in stores, it's going to bring a certain societal normalization to it. Absolutely. That doesn't exist right now. Absolutely. And I think you know, right now, you kind of have to be able to reach out and ask where to get it. And there's been so much work with the Department of Health to make it more accessible. This, putting it at our stores next to what we're used to, our Tylenols, our Benadryls, our things that we go into and buy seasonally, right, um, is going to start to destigmatize the need for naloxone in our community. Um, I hope that in time that also destigmatizes drug use in general, right? People hide with stigma and shame, and when people hide, unfortunately, we get situations where people die alone in abandoned houses because they had nowhere safe to be. They had no one safe to be around. So that work of visually putting that medication next to a medication we're very used to is going to start normalizing it, Uh, not just for our folks that shop but our employees that stock those shelves, our managers that receive shipments of these things in the stores, um, it's going to make naloxone you know, on par with Tylenol. Okay, great, right? And I'm not gonna say this is gonna happen overnight. No. But eventually, I have to believe that that's That's how things going. change that's when it becomes That's what the more OTC common. is gonna do for us. You brought it up and you made the description, which was uh, pretty stark about Someone feeling that stigma about drug use, perhaps, like you said, ending up in a empty house, an abandoned house somewhere by themselves, um, and maybe dying of an overdose because of it. But let's talk a little bit more about the how the stigma becomes an obstacle for not just staying alive, but the possibility of, of better health. Ooh, that's a good, big question. So I want to start by saying... As a professional in the community, it's important to consistently reevaluate our own judgments, our own habits, our own routines. We have learned a lot as a community working with people who use drugs in the last seven, ten years. The landscape has completely changed, right? Folks used to have to complete substance use treatment before their mental health could be treated. We now have fully integrated clinics where we understand that these are co-occurring disorders. Um, Detox used to be very difficult to get into. A lot of progress has been made. Um, But it's going to take a lot of time to undo the harms of that stigma. And I really, truly believe that on the front lines, so our from our security staff up to our counselors, up to our doctors, up to our nurses, we all have to reevaluate how we speak about people who use drugs. Okay. We, we want to get rid of the language that is, oh, it's an addict. Um, you know, it's a frequent flyer. It's just somebody who's going to leave again in three days and come back in a month and want the same thing. We have to really start to understand that um, substance use disorder is a, is a diagnosable condition that we have to treat and we have to understand better. Um I run a, or I facilitate a consumer advisory board uh, for New York State where I work with people who are currently living the experience, um, trying to access services, and we have a discussion once a month about what that's like right now in the environment. I do this for the National Harm Reduction Coalition, and um, the biggest feedback 
most consistent feedback is that what the community wants most is love and respect. They don't want to walk into a clinic and say, I, oh, this is what you're going to do, one, two, three, four. They want to walk in and hear somebody say, how can I help you? What do you need? Um, so as professionals changing our language, so we're more approachable. Stop calling people addicts. Start using the language people who use drugs, people who are struggling with their relationship with substances. Person-first language. Um, and then you know, examining our own stuff. Some of us have things in our personal lives that might affect our initial reaction. Yeah, right? Can you give me an example? That, that yeah, intrigues me. Yeah. So, you know, I've worked with, in these trainings I do for even, you know, with, with Best Health Behavioral Health or the National Harm Reduction Coalition, when I'm introducing this approach of love and compassion and person-centered care uh, with folks there, is inevitably someone in the in the crowd that has had a family member who has struggled. Okay. There's a lot of emotion trapped in that, right? Like if this is your brother, your cousin, a parent, there's a lot of relationship dynamics that can affect how you approach this topic. Sure. And I want to say everybody has access to the best therapy in the world, right? But <laughs> we're <laughs> right. working on making mental health treatment normalized right. and everybody gets great therapy. But we also have to approach each other with some grace. So it can be difficult conversations, right? Somebody might come to me and say, well, that's just enabling them, right? We hear that language sometimes. Well, if I let them live with me, there'll never be a consequence to their drug use. We have to examine that. We have to be comfortable having a conversation with something that might feel a little confrontational. How do you address that then? I mean, I, can, I, I totally, I, as you said that, I could see that conversation going on in living rooms across the country. Oh, Just yes. like that. You know, we can't, <laughs> we can't keep helping you do this. We know you're doing this. We can't yeah. keep helping you do this. You've got to leave. Yeah. How do you then try to interject something that's a little different? Yeah, I, so... I first distinguish that there is what that person is going through as a family member, and then there's what the person who's struggling with that relationship is going through. And that can be hard to distinguish when you're in it. You're living it in the moment. And having support around you know, using some of these basic tools that we learn in, in coping and different kinds of strategies around putting some boundaries up. And that doesn't mean you can't come home after 10 p.m., right? And I don't mean like physical boundaries like that. I mean um, emotionally safe boundaries. Um, I I worked with a parent once who, a story might help here, right? Please. I worked with a parent once who really struggled and was the most wonderful human and just really struggled supporting their child. And I and it was a money thing, right? This comes in, I need money, mom, I need money, I need money. And she's giving him all the money and all the money. And she's like, but there's a limit to that. Now it's affecting me. And this is where the stressor was in their relationship. And I said, well, what if we put a boundary on the amount? What if we just did that? Because what I'm hearing from you is that you want to continue to love and support your child, but it's draining on the resources that you have. So put a limit on that amount. Um, and they did, and it was helpful. And then there's the um, the emotional, right? Like, uh, can I vent to you about all the things that occur on the street when I'm trying to get my drugs? Maybe that's not a conversation that person is help 
feeling safe having with their family member. Sure. So saying like, we can talk about this for like 15 minutes, but then like, I need a minute to process it. I need, a, you know, I need that support. Um, there's a lot of good work being done around family support. Um, I always, when I work with patients, they always want me to work with their family too. And I'll tell you, that's a hard dynamic because how do you, how do you be the patient's person and the family's person? Right. You can't. No. You gotta have. You, there's very specific therapies that will work with okay, families all right, together. All right. But in my experience, I've I've always said like I can work with you, and we can work around those boundaries with your with your family members. But I tell I get a lot of inquiries just in my personal life, knowing my my friends and family, knowing what I do. I get a lot of inquiries. What should I do? What should I what, what should I do? And the first thing I say is make sure that you they know that you love them. Hmm. And I know that sound that sounds simple, but we forget it because we get scared. The overdose crisis is scary. It is not, and folks who use drugs are scared too. The difference is they don't have as many people to talk to about that. Hey, I'm scared that the next time I use could be the last time. How am I? What am I going to do? How am I going to be safer? Right? That fear is there, and I think we forget that because. As a family member, we just we just want it to stop. Right, of course. Just stop, just stop, yeah. just do it. The answer is easy, just stop. And it's just not that simple. Um, I digress a lot. That's but... fine, Anne. <laughs> that is fine. Anne Bridenstine is with us here from uh, Best Self Behavioral Health Trainer and Innovator with um, real interesting length of experience. I want to get into one of your experiences. It goes a little beyond what you're doing right now, but it does touch on it, and that's the syringe exchange. You worked there. I did. I worked at the syringe exchange for six, seven years um, here in Western New York. And, um, you know, when I started, I wanted to I want to talk about how I got introduced to the syringe exchange program, sure. because it's not something that everyone in the community is aware of that no. exists. Right? right. I wasn't either. Right. I knew that there were programs to help people use drugs. I was working with the Human Trafficking Corps program, and uh, a patient needed a ride somewhere, which was part of my job. It was part of what you do. I was like, yeah, right. of course. We'll stop wherever you need. And we went there, and I observed the kind of care that was being provided, and I said to myself, that's what I want to do. Up until then, I had had the experience that people had to get a certain number of things done before they could get help. You needed X, Y, and Z. Well, stop using altogether. That's different in our landscape now. I want to make sure I emphasize right. that I know that. But, you know, back then it was, well, you have to make a commitment to stop using all substances to get in. And it broke my heart. It hurt because I was working with these very real folks in the community that needed help now. Right. I can't come to you healed. Right. <laughs> like, right. Right. I need help now. And back then it was not back then, not that long ago, but no. like back then it was the only program that you walked in the door and it didn't matter what your relationship was with a substance. You were getting help. And whether that was in a very practical way of getting uh, new equipment, sterile syringes um, or someone to talk to. Like, I was amazed at people being around to talk to, right? Um, so uh, it took me a little while to get a job I was going there. to say, did it take you <laughs> back? I mean, the whole... Yeah, it took me, you know, at that point, my exposure to working with people who use drugs was 
um, kind of secondary, right? I, I worked with the human trafficking program and supporting victims in that work. Um, and I want to say it took me about a year. And even then I entered the agency as a HIV and hep C tester. Mm. So I went around and did testing for HIV and hepatitis. And, um, you know, I've worked my way right in there. I'd sit in the exchange and do any work they'd let me do. <laughs> you, Until, and you, you found a bond with it that quickly. Oh, absolutely. Um, and for me, it was about it was about the community that was coming in. Um, and all the work I've done, I've worked with a lot of different populations. This is the community I felt the most love from. And that's super inspiring and rewarding. You know, I when people question what I do, I say some of my favorite people in this entire world are people who use drugs. Hmm. And more people need to say that. And I was going to know? ask then, we don't really know the answer because we're not going to take every person in the world into a, a syringe exchange. But do you think every person in the world would benefit from being in there or from seeing what it's all about? I think so. I mean, I believe in our public health interventions, right, which is what our syringe exchange is. It's harm reduction, public health intervention. We know it works. Uh, we know people's health improves through that access. Um, you know, right now in Western New York, that's the only one covering multiple counties. Um, I'd love to see more, right? I'd love for us to have several where people could access that kind of care in love. Um, and I think that's something New York State's working on. But even for folks that weren't injecting drugs, so not everybody injects right. substances, um, even some of our folks that were smoking substances that could come in and they quickly know this is where I can go to get help to get into an inpatient program, right? Things like that. So um, it's a vital part of the community. It's a part of the community that gets, I think, largely misunderstood. Uh, studies show, right, I brought you all kinds of studies, Please. all kinds of articles. Yes. Uh, studies show that the presence of syringe exchanges actually reduce the amount of syringes in the community, like um, disposed in the community. Okay, all right. So a common misconception is, oh, if we open a syringe exchange, there's going to be needles and paraphernalia anywhere, everywhere, when evidence shows the absolute the opposite. Okay. Yep. So um, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of work to, to be done there. But, but back more. to the idea that could we change overall attitudes, though, if they saw a little bit more about what making these individuals human, yes. right? Yes. And I find in having conversations, I, I revert to this person's story and this person's story and feeling that that's a way to justify that people are human. And I want to, I want to call myself out on that and stop doing that and say, Understood. like, when did we ever assume they weren't? Right. What? But that no. goes back to the idea of a stigma, right? Yeah. That wow, I mean, you know, that, that that person is yeah. has has found you know they've they've taken themselves out of mainstream society by the yeah. extensive use, right? That's yeah. the that's the judgment, I guess, that's being made. Yeah. It doesn't, and what's coming, and you mentioned this earlier, is the idea that a substance abuse disorder or so, a substance mm -hmm. use disorder, it's a disease, right? It's a right. disease. 
this is a medical condition. And we hear, you know, I was listening to a, a TED Talk assigned for for school the other day, and it's like 10 years old. And in this TED Talk, they were hinting at it, hinting at it, hinting at it, you know. Um, but we got to put that in action. We got to put that in action, and that involves, I hinted at it before, very difficult conversations. Sure. Um, I will tell you being in, in nursing school at the moment and being in different clinical and medical environments, there's a number of times that I've thought the medical community needs to kind of, we need to have some difficult conversations and how we approach folks. There's a lot of awesome doctors out there that right. are doing it, but our, our nurses, our unlicensed assistive personnel, the whole scope of people that are involved in that. Well, I was care. even thinking how you were talking about people coming in and just someone, do you need help? How can I help you? I mean, even your whoever's the receptionist is probably just as important as anybody else inside the clinic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when, um, you know, when an organization seeks support and education for their staff, right, I feel that that's a super important part of continuing to improve services, right? We have to have a couple things. Consumer advisory boards are huge. You, you got to be hearing from your community if you're doing good work. And then the second is continued education and support. We only know what we know. Right. Um, you know, I felt very lucky being at Bell Self and being able to host trainings where we get to kind of talk through difficult conversations. Um, but as trainers and educators, we have to be ready to have those difficult conversations, <laughs> right. right? And right. be it. able to say that, I hear what you are saying, and I wonder if we might be able to look at this a little bit different, right? Even as I and I have that those conversations with myself too. Okay. Like, what am I? What did I really just say here? Let's take that back. What if, you know, the example I had earlier about feeling for the longest time like I had to tell stories to get across what I mean, right? To, to build then, a sense of humanity, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But now I'm just asking: When did we ever? Assume that we're in heaven. But at the same time, though, there is, I would think, though, an, 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 uh, I wanna, uh, enriching is not the right word, but when it, you are trying to make your point with somebody who maybe is a long ways away from believing that a syringe exchange is a, a good idea, mm-hmm. those stories, I bet, help. Oh, they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um and that, you know, that goes back to the spirit of, I'm going to throw this out there, the true spirit of harm reduction, right? right? Which is there's a place for all of this in the conversation. It's never, this is just the one right way. It's, there's a place for all of it. Um, and even in those tough conversations, I like to think this was a tough conversation and had an impact on both of us. And we're both going to go back and think about it. There's value in that. There's a lot of value. I might not change your mind today. I'm okay with that because you're going to think about it. Right. You right. know, there's some seed planting maybe. I like I that. I like that. <laughs> Ann Bradenstein is uh, here uh, giving us some uh, seeds for thought, uh, talking uh, general conversation about um, drug addiction and drug use. We got into it. Uh, we use the, uh, the Narcan over-the-counter uh, development that is very an interesting part of all this for sure. I want to go back to those conversations, though. How much can you share about, uh, give us an example of some of those difficult conversations, whether it's with a user, user's family, um, 
and like we just got into a little bit there, just the person who is a million miles away from ever coming close to this. Talk about, mm-hmm. get us into some of those conversations. Let us experience that a little bit. Yeah. So I think from my experience, I have more experience working with people that are maybe that so far away from identifying any possibility of change. Right. right? Um, you got to first ask if they want to. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. Um, I found it very helpful early on to just start saying to people, what is your relationship with the substance? When you use that word relationship, mm. something super interesting happens. Mm. They give you all of their feelings about it, right? It's You'll hear some anecdotal things like, oh, it's love-hate, or it's uh, – I'm trying not to use profanity here. I'm trying to censor <laughs> myself. I've heard some interesting responses to that, but then I've also – um, opened up really beautiful conversations of how it started, how it ended. All of a sudden, with one question, I have so many things to talk to this person about. Um, and instead of saying, have you ever thought about quitting, <laughs> which automatically feels confrontational, right. I'm I'm allowing them to tell me what that looks like um, without judgment that I think I know where they should go. Some of the hardest cases I've worked on, cases, some of the hardest situations I've worked Look with. Look at you self-regulating I your am, language. I am. I am. <laughs> but I want to model that for people. Let's right. catch ourselves and yeah. do better, right? Yeah. Um, some of the most difficult situations, I talk about this a lot with new clinicians, is when we see folks that we know life could be so much better. We can see the improvement happening if just this. That's hard. And just like a family member, right? That's where we have to reevaluate. We have to understand where that motivation is coming from. It's probably triggering something inside you. Good supervision is a must, right? Right, right, right. Um, but I tell, I tell new clinicians, we want to we wanna take a step back and I'm going to say something that was shared with me early on. Um, a quote from Dan Big, who's big, who is the reason we have a community-based naloxone program um, in the harm, you know, from the harm reduction movement, um, and that's any positive change. Right. The whole goal here is that we're reducing the risks um, associated with with drug use. That can be so many different things, and once we get to know people, those positive changes are everywhere. When I first started, and I was um, sending people to inpatient treatment programs, which was a tough position to be in because you build engagement and rapport with people, and um, they might be getting the need to go from someone outside their own motivation um, a number of different ways. Um, but they start to, to feel connected to you, and they want a successful completion so they can come back and tell you, I did it. Right. right. And... I learned quickly that that idea of any positive change, regardless of how many times somebody went to inpatient, there was something there. Something was learned. We got something, you know. So anytime I'm struggling with someone I think is 150 miles away from where they could be, where I see they could be, we want to we focus on their any positive change. What is their relationship? Where do they see that relationship going? 
Denmark. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. More to come right after this on WBFO. Check out the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel. Ellicottville is a town of variety, not only in what they have to offer, but the people. The Burlington community is uh, becoming increasingly multicultural, and the library is reflecting that. Parks and playgrounds have been what makes the town of Tonawanda a great place to grow up. The series began in 2003, but it's making its debut on YouTube now. Although some of the businesses and people may have changed over the years, the spirit of these wonderful towns remain the same. We just didn't realize what we had in our own backyard. We need the next generation to protect it and carry on. Learn about Jamestown, Burlington, Welland, East Aurora, and more than a dozen other beautiful communities in our region by watching the Our Town series now on YouTube. I, w I would live there. <laughs> WNED Classical has been conducting interviews of their own on YouTube with the classical music community. Have you ever wondered what goes into the performances you hear on WNED Classical? Head on over to our Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube page to see the collection of interviews that we've orchestrated. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. Watch Buffalo's Voices of Steel on YouTube. The original WNED-PBS production captures the legacy of the steel industry in Western New York through the voices of the people who worked in the mills. Anybody who never saw the steel plant in operation missed something. I always told my kids that. They really missed to see what it was like to make steel. Through remembrances of the workers, Buffalo's Voices of Steel showcases the pride Western New York still feels about its steel-producing past. Watch it now on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there. Buffalo is home to many historical treasures, including architectural gems. Central Terminal affected everybody. Everybody from the common man to the movie star walked this concourse. Beloved community establishments. They might get a glimpse to see Lena Horne. Uh, they might uh, see Dizzy or Miles Davis, uh, you know, Charlie Parker. And homes for local sports teams. When we talk about an institution, Memorial Auditorium was an institution. The WNED PBS original production, Remembering Western New York, explores some of these iconic structures and their connection to people who live in the region. There was a time when Buffalo's Main Street was the focus of holiday shopping in Western New York. Watch Remembering Western New York now on YouTube. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And Bridenstein is with the best of best self-behavior health trainer and innovator. I was fortunate enough to uh, get an opportunity to go up to uh, Horizon Health, their uh, uh, residential treatment center, and uh, a gentleman was kind enough to share his story with me. I shared that with another professional later on who told me the sad reality that they gave this individual who I was impressed with, his 
honesty and his story and, and all that. Um, and he might have like a two in 10 chance of, of ever really overcoming and not dying from the excessive use that he has. How about knowing that? You must know that, of course. How about, how do you deal with knowing that and probably have known people that you've helped who haven't, you know, they haven't made it. They've, you know, they've, mm-hmm. they've died because of this. How do you and your fellow uh, colleagues if, you know, who deal with this, how do, you, how do you deal with that reality? Hmm. I feel like this is a two-part answer. Sure. So the first part I want to say is that that measurement is based on someone stopping using substances altogether. And what I want to emphasize is that there is still a great value of life with different relationships with substances, right? That quality of life. You can still love someone who uses drugs. They can still actively participate in our community, and they do actively participate in our community. There's a lot of people who use drugs that don't look like they, right? Like if we get outside of that stigma. So first, that measurement, yes, based on abstinence, sure. But let's not forget that that doesn't mean that there isn't a value to the life that's that's lived. Um, the second part, how do we deal with losing folks? Um, this is something I think we will learn better with time. There's a lot of materials out there from places like the National Harm Reduction Coalition. There's webinars about um, the grief of the overdose crisis. But losing a patient is um, an experience that, I mean, I don't wish on anybody, right? Like, I'm trying not to just say the things I'd normally say. Right. Um, it's incredibly difficult. It, for me, as an individual, the person I am, it makes me want to love on people more. Hmm. Right. Um, We go a lot. I'll talk about one patient who I lost who was very dear to me. I can still hear him calling my name down the hallway. Uh, Changed my life, honestly. Um, The first person to take me into the community with him to do outreach. Best. Um, Still dream about him, right? Hmm. Um, I look back on that and think, how many times I wish I wish I would have said, you're an awesome person. Like the value you add to my day is so profound. Um, I've made that a habit now, you know, in mm. people that I work with, you know, there's a lot of like, thanks, I can't believe you would check in with me. I can't believe you would text me. And I'm thinking, you bring value to my life too. Um, yeah. But it's hard. You need good support. Um, I wish for the community of people that use drugs, right? And I say it that way because I'm not a person who uses drugs. I don't have lived experience. Um, I'm welcomed into the community, but it's not my life, right? Um, That there was more acknowledgement of the community-based trauma of losing their friends. Mm. 
their loved ones. We would have, you know, as a community, we experience spikes in overdoses. There's a, sometimes they call them strong batches or whatever, and we'll experience a, a surge. And when I w worked in that setting, there was the way I needed to take care of myself, but then there was the need of that community to take care of each other. And I always wanted this like great community-based grief. How do we do this? And there's certain symbolic ways, right? We have an um, overdose awareness day, things like that. But um, having that kind of support for people, um, I think would be very valuable. And if you're in, if you've, you're in a program, you have access to that, which is awesome. And being able to be involved in a, a therapeutic program and a clinic-based program, regardless of your relationship with substances, is a huge start. Um, but I think about community-based work and the need for more community-based I mean, obviously, with the Giving Back Foundation that right. we talked about right. earlier, um, I see the need there for our community to have more of those um, mutual aid groups, folks in the community right bring the power to the people in the community to support each other bring the information to them bring the education to them and bridenstein is our guest this morning on buffalo what's next trainer and innovator with best self behavioral health um you touched on a couple of things there. i want to bring you out of that it was a uh, obviously pretty emotional to think back to uh people that you've lost that you really cared for obviously um a couple of things though you talked about these occasional spikes in overdoses that we're seeing. We're also hearing a lot more about trank, fentanyl mixed with xylazine, which I believe is like a, a, for uh, domestic animals, I believe, a tranquilizer of some sort. We're seeing this in Western New York? So, yes. And mm -hmm. I want to I be careful. So xylazine, I've done a bunch of trainings, xylazine. I worked in... Um, with some groups in Philadelphia around their response to xylazine being introduced to their, their drug supply. Also, this is um, a substance that has become a drug of choice in Puerto Rico, so there's a lot of experience we can draw on from okay. the providers there. So um, in our current area, um, this is more identified as a contaminant in our drug supply. So what I mean by that, I actually brought you some, I did some testing of samples. Uh, you can do that through public health schools and stuff. So I um, sent in some samples for analysis. Okay. And um, we know that it's here, but it's not, it, the the amount of it that's in our supply is minimal. Okay. As compared to So it's a contaminant other... rather than, okay. I hope I'm making a good distinction. No, there. I understand. Whereas right. like our supply right now is predominantly fentanyl or fentanyl-like substances, fentanyl analogs. Um, there's some caffeine in there sometimes. There's some Benadryl in there, believe it or not, sometimes, um, and some other weird things. But xylazine has really been identified as a contaminant. There were a few press releases um, earlier this month. I believe yeah. Chuck Schumer put out a press release. Um, so xylazine is a, a veterinary analgesic and sedative. It has opioid-like effects. The draw to maybe a batch, you know, folks, 
can't test their drugs on the street, right? There are some xylazine test strips out there, but it's FDA approval has to go through all these things. Um, you don't necessarily know what's in your substance. You go to who has the stuff that worked. That's the that's the right. <laughs> information right. folks have, right? Yeah. Um, and it, it's appealing because it lasts longer than fentanyl. It fentanyl is fentanyl a very brief high, has correct? Legs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and that's all they're talking about in the community: the stuff that has legs. And you know, as a provider, we're like, oh gosh, what are what are we going to do? Well, I'm going to tell you what I teach at Best Self as the the response to this. Xylazine is a contaminant. We know our response to an opioid overdose, right? Because remember, this is still fentanyl with this contaminant. Yes. Is administered Narcan. Now, at any point, those ratios could change. They probably change with each batch that comes through. Yeah. We want to make sure that the folks who are using drugs know now more than ever, it's important to find a way to administer Narcan the way you know how and call 911. That sedative and analgesic um, comes on quickly, so people tend to fall asleep much faster. I think about our folks in super vulnerable positions who are sleeping outside, mm. who are maybe, I hate to tell you, we're in a community where, I mean, we're in a nation where drugs are criminalized to the point where we're ducking behind buildings, behind garbage, dumps, you know, right. wherever. Public bathrooms that might not be checked on all the time. Um, we people fall asleep faster and the risk increases. So really making sure that the message is give Narcan and call 911. Give Narcan and call 911. Um, I will say, having been in, you know, running this consumer advisory group has kept me really on the ground with with folks the last couple years. And Zalazine's been here a while. Okay. And there's another key indicator to this. So a couple of things we started hearing a couple years ago. One, oh man, it took me nine doses of Narcan for this person to wake up. That's a lot of Narcan. Wow. So, and we know pharmacologically, right, that um, we know how naloxone works. We use it in our hospitals. We know we don't need that many. Something else is happening. And that's the conversation I started having folks. Like, something else is happening. That's a lot of Narcan to need for just opiates. Right. Um, then we started seeing some odd wounds. And this is a hallmark for xylazine. There's some research that indicates that um, there's an interruption in, at a cellular level, right? Like the O2 binding to the heme. What it really causes is um, wounds beyond the site of injection. So we're starting to see necrotizing wounds in arms and legs. And they start off real small, like a little bruise. And it's because the tissue dies at the most distal point it travels to. Mm. So I started seeing these wounds. It's actually part of the reason I enrolled in nursing school. I was like, I need to know more stuff. And um, <laughs> we started to see them. So, you know, when this was, when this news came out, I kind of went back to the, the folks on the consumer advisory board. I'm like, don't you kind of think it's been here for a while? Like, look at these key indicators. Look at the stuff we're looking at. We've been talking about this for a while. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, so what have you done? Right, <laughs> How right. have you handled this? Because we too often forget in, you know, I, I've brought you our, our clinician's guide to xylazine response, right? Uh, we tend to forget, like, we could also ask the people living the experience how they handled this. Right. How, what have you been doing? Um, 
So, I, I mean, that's really my, my big thing about xylazine. But the biggest takeaway, um, because what I'm he- hearing pulled out of some of the news reports is it, it, Narcan doesn't work on it. Please, let's not create any. I would never want to put messaging out into the community that Narcan doesn't work on something. Right. Right. Is it, is it technically correct? Yes, it's technically correct. But it's a contaminant in our supply. We want folks to continue using Narcan as they have been. As far as the wound, in my dream world, we'd have a mobile wound care management mm-hmm. <laughs> program. That's what they have in Philadelphia really? and, and in Maryland. Since you brought up the example, then what's been the impact of those? I mean, it's a major public health crisis. It's When we talk about these wounds, it's not something that heals in a few days. We're looking 6, 12 months. Mm. And those are in ideal circumstances. Ideal, right? I've yet to meet folks that have the ideal circumstances, the access to the supplies needed to take care of them, the willingness of people to talk to them about what's happening with their bodies, the education, the information. That's got to get out there. Um, And, uh, you know, in Philadelphia, people are losing limbs, fingers, arms, legs, right? These can get so bad. And it's not an easy thing to show someone what has happened to your body, right? We're going to wrap back around to that stigma. So not only is there the stigma of I'm someone who uses drugs, now there's the stigma of there's something going on with my body and it's really scary. And I'll save the details of showing you the pictures, but they're very intense wounds. Mm. um, And this is all from injecting. It's all from the xylazine. Right. So there's like, and I, I make that distinction because there are certain injection-related wounds that as a community, you know, working with people who inject, we were used to seeing and used to providing information on. This is a totally different physiological process. Um, It literally, the the tissue dies at that point. So um, they're at risk for infection. They're at risk for prolonged healing. Nutrition pays, plays the largest part in healing these kinds of wounds. And we're working with folks that probably don't have access to the, to the nutrients, the nutrient-dense type foods that we need. Right? I remember having a conversation with somebody not that long ago. I was like, okay, great. Here's the supplies you need. Awesome. And if you could just up your protein and hydration. <laughs> and he looked at me like I was insane. And I was like, okay. How could I communicate this to you in a way that's practical? And he's like, does peanut butter have enough protein? Because that's about all I can afford. And and that's, you know, when we, we use kind of our, our rapport negotiating tactics. Like, not ideal, but you know what? Yes. Right. Increase your intake of, of peanut butter. Um, so, you know... You know, and uh, I also, because you did bring this up in our conversation here, and I wanted to circle back on it because it really is an interesting development. You um, volunteer with a group called the Giving Back Foundation. Mm -hmm. And this is very interesting how you go about, this group goes about, reaching out into the community. Yeah. You're not going to community centers. Where do you go? Where do you go? How do you connect with the community? (laughs) We go to street corners. 
Um, so the Giving Back Foundation was founded uh, late last year out of a, a dream of my friend Yvette Chavez-Gonzalez um, to uh, create a mutual aid organization, an organization that was run by people with either lived experience or living the experience so that we could really meet the needs. Not what I think the community needs, what the community is telling me they need. Right. So it's pretty basic what they've asked for. Food, hot coffee, oh, hot coffee, food, clothing. So we set up on a corner with hot coffee, food, clothing, um, we've got a great group of friends and folks that donate stuff to us. Buffalo Resilience brings food, which if you know anything about Buffalo Resilience, those aren't those are like chef donated meals. Right. That's like yep. it's awesome. Um, and they're to go meals, right? So you, you eat one, you take one. And um, they also are an ov- op- oh, excuse me, opioid overdose prevention program. So they can also provide Narcan for the folks during those um and once we have that visual cue there that, oh, we're serving a meal and we have clothes, oh, you have Narcan, now all of a sudden we're talking about our relationship with substances in that community. Um, and it's cool. As soon as we start setting up, one or two people will see us and say, what time is the food ready? What time is the coffee ready? Right? And then spread out into the community and work together to bring people. And it's great. I mean, it's great for – I get – so much from just spending a few hours with people and and without even thinking about it providing resources and information and checking in on folks how so and so oh great tell them to come next time we'll be here in three weeks you know something something like that how do you do you have a specific method or about how you engage um do you say place to stay tonight and what Mm -hmm. how do you begin those conversations you got to be able to read people a little bit right right? like assess that approachability and i'm thinking like approaching a stranger but in you know build in building community there's a few people that'll come to events like that and i'll tell you the most impactful thing that I think happens is somebody I know will come up and I'll be greeted. And this is me. I'm a very, you, you can't see me on air, but you can see (laughs) me now. Like I'm a very expressive person and they'll come up and I'll be like, Oh my God, it's so good to see you. And you hug the person and you're talking to them. And you know, um, unfortunately because the population is so stigmatized, the folks I've worked with are so stigmatized. One of the, one of the first things someone said to me was like, you're not afraid to touch me. And I'm like, Hmm. No, wait, should I be? <laughs> right? Like, I'll <laughs> right, joke right, with them, right, like, right. is there something you need to tell me before <laughs> I shake your hand? Right. Um, but they see that and they're like, oh, wow, there's like some genuine care here. And um, we can be afraid of that. Right. We can, um, I would encourage people to challenge themselves on that. If you're not a hugger, okay, right, right. shake a hand. Um, hi, my name is Anne. What, what, what's your name? Yeah. What's your name? What brought you here? You want some coffee? Mm-hmm. That's the cool thing about setting up coffee. Just about everybody wants coffee. <laughs> right, right. Definitely. Um, and for me, you know, uh, we have the benefit community based outreach like that has a lot of benefits because we get to just approach humanity. Right. And that's, I think 
awesome, right? I bring my kids. I have teenagers. And somebody will be like, you brought your kids? I'm like, yes. (laughs) Because we're going to set the example that this is a a human human. We just want to love on people, right? Um, I feel a little bit preachy in saying that. but That's, That's all right. You live it. You live it. So (laughs) we're just asking you to to share your your feelings about it. And I want a a final question of sorts to sum things up here. And not necessarily sum it up, but but again, maybe giving it back over to you. And if you get a little preachy, well, we'll we'll, we'll pull you off the stage here. But just the message that you want the community, when I'm saying the community, the greater community, not the community of of people who are dealing in drug are drug users, I should say, um, you're, what you want them to know about this experience and what you think the community, how it could um, make for a better life for a lot of people who are in difficult circumstances right now. I think we have to start by unlearning some bad, I don't wanna say habits. A lot of times when I have those difficult conversations, people don't even realize how it might be received. Right. So go back to something I said earlier, having those difficult conversations. Learn from each other. Don't be afraid to learn. doesn't matter if you have 20 years experience, six years experience, three months. Let's keep learning. Let's keep improving. Let's keep getting better. Most importantly, if you're in a position of power within your organization, within your community, start bringing folks in to the conversations. Um, that's my my real hope in talking about engaging people who use drugs, right? They need to be part of our conversations. Um, ask them, how are you doing? What do you need? They know. Just nobody's listening. Nobody's asking. Um, appro- approaching things that way, I think, will help the growth and support of the community. We know we know it works. You know, I've I've worked with somebody mid state. I volunteer with another organization in Rochester and um I saw somebody six months apart and I was like, Oh my God, your health has improved so much. You look amazing. No, no, no. What changed? And he's like, I found a group of people who were there when I needed them. And they just loved on me. Like, don't forget the power of that. Excellent. And Bridenstine, our guest this morning on uh, Buffalo What's Next. She is a trainer and innovator with Best Self Behavioral Health. But as we just heard in the last uh, almost hour, uh, there's a, a lot more there than just a title. Uh, Anne, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed today. Thank you. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. If you or anyone that you may know is suffering from substance use disorder, please contact our friends at Best Self Behavioral Health at 716-884-0888.